0: Hi I'm Gary and this is episode 143 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today we'll be looking at the UK's Automobile Association, the AA, and how it's adapting to electric vehicles. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free to download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I'd like to know that anyone who bought my ebook, So You've Got Electric, is in for a little surprise. I've been updating the contents in light of changes that have happened with charging companies, charge speeds, hardware, and the actual cars themselves. I believe that anyone who has a copy of this book will have the option to receive this update free of charge when it's released. All you have to do is head to the Manage Your Kindle item on the Amazon menu and then click the Update Available text next to my ebook, which will appear when I've obviously put the update in, and you then click the Update This Title Now link. So enjoy reading the second edition of the book, completely free and gratis if you've already bought one. If you're new to the podcast and are considering buying an EV, check out the link in the show notes and get your copy now. Our main topic of discussion today is the AA. We've talked before on this podcast about the fact that EVs are more reliable than thermic cars. It's a new word of the day, thermic. But they still need breakdown services. Obviously, the one that everyone thinks about is the need to come out when a car runs out of charge. But there's also things such as tyre problems that are quite high on the list of breakdown issues. To talk through this and understand the difference between perception and reality, I'd like to welcome Edmund King, OBE, the president of the AA in the United Kingdom. For foreign, especially US listeners, the AA is the Automobile Association, and it's more or less the equivalent of your AAA organisation. Welcome, Edmund. Thank you for your time.
1: You're most welcome, Gary.
0: Tell me, before we start, I like to ask this question of most guests that come on. Tell me briefly about your journey to where you are now in terms of the AA.
1: Well, I've always been interested in cars, in politics, and communications, and I guess it's a combination of all those things that eventually took me to the AA. I mean, as a young boy, I grew up in uh, Norwich and lived next door, but one Colin Chapman, the chairman and founder of Lotus Cars. And actually, I learned a lot about cars as a little kid because he used to hang out with his son and Chapman flew me to my first Grand Prix. So I met all the famous racing drivers like Graham Hill and Emerson Fittipaldi. And from a very young age, that gave me a fascination with cars. I then went on to study politics. I also lived in America for a while and was involved in communications, worked for a radio station in LA. So My job at the AA, in a way, is the ideal job for me because it does combine that interest in automobiles, interest in the broader kind of political systems out there, and also interest in how do we communicate messages to drivers, to government, to stakeholders. So it's a combination of those things, really, that that gives me the ideal job.
0: Obviously, this is a a podcast about electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. Have you personally been taken by the charms of an electric vehicle yet?
1: Oh, indeed. I I was an early adopter, actually, to to electric vehicles. The first electric vehicle I had was some 20 years ago in, in London. It was a Ford Think electric vehicle. It had a massive range of just 37 miles it was made out of polyurethane it was very different to the vehicles today in fact i did get caught out one day we we used it mainly around london and for some reason one friday night it was raining and i'd had a long week and didn't want to take the train so i decided to drive it home to st albans which is about 26 miles what i didn't know is a colleague had taken it out earlier with an MP and driven it around Westminster. So I set out thinking I would just about have the range to get home, it then started to rain, I had to put my lights on, and about six miles short of home, it actually ran out of charge. So that that was an early lesson for me. But the interesting thing is, since then, and I would say, particularly the last five years, things in terms of EVs have just got so much more exciting. I mean, currently, there are something like 140, 150 different models out there. There are another 44 or so coming online this year. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I guess I wouldn't have been that excited with the electric vehicles out there today. You are spoiled for choice. There are some brilliant, not not just electric vehicles but vehicles. There are some brilliant cars out there, great, great performance, great safety features, fantastic to drive so yeah i'm 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 a real convert, and I guess I was a bit of a petrol head. I had lots of sports cars uh, in in the past which which I loved, but you can still get some of that from electric vehicles.
0: I want to talk about what the AA are doing to embrace electric vehicles, but just sort of looping back on the discussion that you just had there, can you lay to rest the myth that running out of charge is the most common failure that the AA deal with when it comes to EVs?
1: Yeah, this is always the big perception, isn't it? When you ask people why they haven't got an EV, and it is this kind of what's described as range anxiety or charge anxiety, and everyone thinks they'll be running out of charge. now. In 2021, it was less than 4% of breakdowns for EVs were out of charge. And that had halved over the last couple of years. It used to be about 8%. That's halved. But even if that 4%, half of those weren't actually out of charge, they were low on charge and a bit worried about where they would find the next charger, So they would call out the AA. But those figures are coming down all the time. And I think there's a combination of reasons. One is the range of cars is getting better. Another is we are getting more charge points. And I think the third one is driver education. Drivers are getting a bit more savvy towards how electric cars work. So, it's not a major problem. And if you look at other countries like Norway that have got far more EVs than, than we have, We talked to the AA equivalent in Norway and on their breakdowns, it's less than 1% are out of charge. So, that really isn't an issue. And ironically, when you look at electric vehicles, the most common cause for breakdowns are exactly the same as for petrol and diesel cars. And number one is tyres and wheels. So, you know, potholes give you... Punches, whether you're in an electric car or not and number two interestingly is the 12 volt battery you know 12 volt batteries can still go wrong on electric cars as they do on combustion engine cars so yeah the top volts are exactly the same and out of charge is a small proportion and we believe it will get even smaller.
0: So let me just confirm the figures on that. So that's not 4% of all the calls that you make. That's 4% of all the calls that you make to electric vehicles are problems with charge or lack of charge or running out of charge.
1: Yeah, that that is correct. And, and if you look at it in the broader scheme of things, last year as the AA, we dealt with over 3 million breakdowns overall, all sorts of vehicles and cars out of charge was about 1,600. And of those, half of that 1,600 weren't actually out of charge, but they were low on charge. So, yeah, it's a relatively small problem. And I think as people get used to electric cars, the, the problem will get smaller. You do get Quite a lot of warning on an electric car if you are low on charge. You know, I, I do a route from Hertfordshire to Norwich and back, and I know I can do it on one charge, but I know when I get back, I'll have less than 20%. And when I get to about 20%, my car does warn me. When I get towards 10%, it warns me again. My sat now flashes up where there are charging points. But I know I can make it to get home where I can charge at home. But I do get adequate warnings. So I think, you know, it's rather like out of fuel. When, When your fuel gauge comes on, you know, depending on the car, you know, you might have 10 miles, you might have 15 miles. But you know you need to fill up. And it's exactly the same with electric. So I think the real lesson, though, for electric drivers is don't always wait until the last minute, particularly if you're doing a long journey and uh, you, you might have 40% charge left, but if you know there's a really good charger, it's got rapid chargers there, you know they're relatively new chargers, what I would tend to do on a, on a longest journey would stop off, take advantage of that charge, You know, put, put the money in the bank and then continue the journey.
0: And I think that's something that we uh, we talk about on the podcast quite often about having you know a charger that's within your range and maybe a backup one in case there's a problem with that mm. so yeah you're you're preaching to the choir there absolutely uh, do you have off the top of your head figures for the number of internal combustion engine vehicles that you deal with that run out of fuel every year
1: yeah it, it is actually slightly lower as a percentage it is around one percent so it's quite equivalent to what the Norwegian figure is for EVs, and we actually believe that EV out of charge will reduce to about one percent. you know, and that one percent might be people having a bad day, not really thinking about it, or getting to charges that aren't actually working. So, yeah, from, from the 4%, we think it will reduce to about 1%, which is about the same for out of petrol or out of diesel.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about what the AA is doing specifically in terms of embracing the type of breakdowns that they're experiencing from electric vehicles? Is there anything that you're putting uh, differently into mm. the vans? Is there any sort of additional training that you're giving to your uh, your employees?
1: Yeah, f- first of all, training is so, all of our 3,500 patrols have been trained in how to deal with EVs. They've all been trained to Level 1. This year, they're all trained to Level 2. And then we do have some cohorts trained to Level 3. So, that, that's very important because that that explains what they can deal with on the car and what they can't deal with on the car. So So, that's ongoing. Plus, the garage network that we use it's about 45% of that garage network have got specialists who can deal with EVs with any problems what whatsoever. So that's all being done. In terms of the actual vans and equipment, I guess the, the thing we've, we've done that, that's most radical is that some EVs are slightly difficult to tow or some manufacturers have said, you know, you can't tow this EV or you can only tow it a small distance. You can only tow it at lower speeds. Now, our technical division has has found that some of that advice was actually overcautious. And when we've actually looked at the vehicles on some of them, there is no reason why you can't tow those vehicles and and we've told the manufacturers and we've got some of them to revise their advice. But for others, where towing might be a problem, we don't always want to wait to get a large recovery vehicle. A recovery vehicle is, is like an HGV and obviously it's not as good for the environment, it's more expensive for us. So, what we've done We've developed something. Our, our chief engineer and his shed at night developed this freewheeling hub, and it's quite ingenious. It's a kind of hub that goes on the outside of the rear wheels so that you can then tow an EV on this hub, and it's a freewheeling hub. So it's the hub that freewheels the, the vehicle rather than the vehicle's wheels. And this is quite genius because it means any of our patrol vehicles out there, if they need to do so, can actually tow an EV because they're all equipped with with two of these freewheeling hubs. So I guess that's that's the major kind of innovation that we've made ap- apart from the training. Other, otherwise, you know, there are things like they have special gloves because of the electric current. So there are a few parts of the kit that are different, but fun- fundamentally. You know, it, it is the towing and it is the extra training, which, which is different.
0: I was up, as you may recall, up at Oldbury at your uh, your headquarters up there a little while back, and I saw the hubs that you were talking about. And it's it's such a simple solution when you sit down and think about it. But it's the fact that nobody had actually done that until your guy sat down there, as you say, in his in his shed and put it together. And, and it solves so many problems, doesn't it?
1: Well, yeah, that, that's the thing that really intrigued me, that, He was actually in the shed and he actually made the first three-wheeling hub was made out of wood. I've seen the original prototype. And it was that idea, he then got it made up, it was then obviously stress tested, it was tested, you know, for different weights of vehicles and all of that. And, you know, it it just shows that the AA for a 100 odd years has been at the forefront of Innovation, you know, it was the AA that actually introduced the first petrol filling station in the UK, at Oldermaster. It was the AA that actually put out the first road signs, believe it or not, in in the UK. So there are a lot of initiatives where the AA has been at the cutting edge of progress and innovation. And I, I think it's the same with EVs and this freewheeling hub because saves a lot of resources saves a lot of co2 and potentially also saves money
0: absolutely do any of your patrols have the ability to physically provide a charge for an electric vehicle at the roadside
1: yeah we do have a couple of innovation bands in fact we were showing them off at the british motor show last week that have got the ability to recharge at the roadside and we also have one actually that that can uh, fill up hydrogen at the roadside as well. However, I I would stress that it's not the most efficient thing to do. And the reason for that is if, if you're broken down, you might, or if you're out of charge in an electric vehicle, you might be in a dangerous place and quite often the safest thing to do is actually to move you to a safer place. So, you know, safety comes first. But also, currently, with the onboard charging technology, it takes something like 30 to 40 minutes to give you a 10-mile charge. Now, as an EV driver, I don't really want a 10-mile charge because it might mean, yes, I can drive 10 miles, but can I find another charger within 10? that is actually working. So what we find is the most efficient thing for both ourselves, but more importantly for the customer, is to actually use the free winning hub and actually tow someone to a rapid charger and make sure that rapid charger is is working so that they can get a decent charge and get on their way. And that actually saves them time and it's safer. So, you know, If in the future, and we look at these things all all the time, we talk to companies all the time, if you can get a charger on board that is much more rapid, that can give you more charge in a short period of time, we'll invest in it. But currently, it really isn't the best solution out there.
0: Completely. Yeah, totally agree with that. Now, you've talked so far about a number of the innovations that the AA have done, training and the the freewheeling hub and, and you know you've just talked there about potentially having uh, on board charging now let's just take a, a step back and say what particularly what prompted the moves that you've made there to embrace electric vehicles was was there a data driven decision behind this or was there a, a bit more emotion involved in it you know we know evs are coming so we might as well get ahead of the curve with them
1: yeah i think it is a combination of things I, uh, without a doubt something that did concentrate the minds was the government edict that by 2030, the sale of new petrol and diesel cars will be outlawed. Some hybrids will be allowed till 2035. And if you think about that, that's that's only eight years away. Now, okay for the whole car park to change in terms of our customers because, you know, currently, like the world out there, despite everything and all the talk about EVs, the media coverage about EVs. Yeah, the reality is it is still a tiny proportion of vehicles out there. You know, it's something like two, two and a half percent. But I guess we've always got to think about the future. What are the future trends? What will we need to do? And and sometimes, Gary, it is a bit of a problem because you train three thousand patrols to deal with EVs. But the likelihood of a patrol dealing with an EV every day or indeed every month, you know, in some cases, is relatively low. And as you know, the best form of training is when you can use it in practice. So that does mean we still need to have refresher training. But I think as a company, we want to reflect the changing environment out there, but also on environmental grounds, we, we can see the argument for having more EVs out there, for having lower emission vehicles in, in terms of CO2, global warming, etc. cetera. So I think it's a combination of realising that technology was changing, but also realising that for the benefit of our country and environment, we ourselves also have have to change with the times
0: talk to me then about some of the data that you're capturing around the work that you're doing supporting electric vehicles how is that influencing some of the future decisions that you're contemplating and are you passing any of this back to manufacturers you know these are the kinds of consistent issues that we're finding within, you know, with Nissan Leafs or with iPaces paces for example? Is, is there any sort of data transfer between you and the manufacturers?
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, we work very closely with manufacturers and uh, a majority of manufacturers actually offer AA coverage as, as standard on brand new vehicles. So obviously those manufacturers that we have close relationships with, like Ford, like JLR, et cetera, We will feed back information on new models, and quite often we are the best people to feed back that information because not every Ford vehicle will go back to a Ford dealership. We will sort more than 80% of problems that arise actually at the roadside. So, yes, we, we we will feed back to the manufacturers, we can Uh, We can even help them with things like recalls, If, if there are pretty standard recalls, the AA has helped on many of them because, again, you've got to think about the customer, the consumer, the driver. They don't always want to go back to the dealership to get something simple sorted out. So, there are some manufacturers that we work with, and it's our patrols that will actually go out to people's homes, and if it's quite a simple fix, can do it on the driveway. So, yeah. We're working all the time to make things more efficient. And one of the ways that we're working as a company is when a car has a problem, you don't always have to send a resource out there. And we ran an experiment a couple of years ago, which I which I thought was quite genius. We actually took some of our best patrols and we took them off the road and we put them into a call centre. And when there were calls that, potentially we thought well you don't actually need someone out there on the ground to sort it those calls would be put through to the patrols and the patrols obviously understand the dashboard they understand the warning lights they understand the sounds that are coming from the vehicle and i think it was something like it was something like 86% of the calls that went through to the patrols they actually if you like fixed it via the telephone rather than getting out there. So, again, I think that's that's an innovation that particularly as cars become more complex, more connected, that's something that I think with the AA, you'll, you'll see us doing more and more of that kind of online fixes or you know, even with connected vehicles, we can fix the vehicle before it breaks down. So, that scenario will be developing a lot, I would say, in the next three or four years.
0: Let me throw sort of a, a devil's advocate type of question in, related not specifically to what you've just said, but sort of tangentially. At the moment, you provide support for pretty much all the cars that are on the road. But uh, as you've already said, EVs are a relatively small proportion of the call outs that you, uh, that you attend. Now, if they are as reliable as we all think they are and, and your stats indicate, is it a case to say that? Higher EV adoption will result in the lower need for your services across the whole country.
1: But I think this comes back to the fundamental point that 30% of the breakdowns are exactly the same. So you will still have punctures. You will still have battery problems, 12-volt battery problems. You will still have people making mistakes. I mean, I think almost the third breakdown is you know people... Losing their keys or locking their keys in the vehicle, you you can do that in an EV as much as you can in a petrol or diesel car. So there will be those ones, but I think also there will be additional things as cars develop that we need to look at. Cars have more and more sensors, cameras, radar, lidar, etc., and you're beginning to get faults that you didn't get. Previously, like the camera can't detect what's up front. Maybe the camera's just dirty. Maybe someone's hit you in the car park and it's dented. There will be other faults that actually come up as cars become more sophisticated. And we're already beginning to see that on, on some vehicles. So, for example, we do breakdown for McLaren. When when you go out to a McLaren you rarely use a spanner, you use a laptop and you have to link your laptop to the to the McLaren. You know, it is a different world already. You know, when I when I, when I think of my first car, you know, a mini clubman that costs forty five pounds or something. I could do most things on that car, you know, I could change the spark plugs, uh, you know, I even did something with the rusted sills, you know. I, I could do most things on that car. When I look at my current EV and I try and open the engine and there's nothing there, you know, there's little I can do apart from check tyre pressures and put windscreen wiper fluid in it. So the world of automation is changing. The way we address it is changing. But from looking at what's happening with EVs, both at the roadside and at the charge points, there's still a lot of work for the AA to do, both now and into the future.
0: I mean, that's an excellent point. You know, I'm a, ironically, my very first car was a an eight fifty Mini, and I could do exactly what you said. I mean, I took the cylinder head off and replaced the gasket, and ground the valves, and all that sort of thing. But now I get into, my, I drive a, an ID three. I get into that, and I don't need a key. It recognises when I'm in the car. It starts without me having to press a button. The handbrake is not a handbrake, it's some electronic thing that turns off and on and there's no way I can override it. And it, it's a little bit scary in, in certain aspects because if something like that goes wrong, I have absolutely no idea what to do with it.
1: Well, it is. The, the world is changing so much. And th- this comes back to a fundamental point of the AA that we've been looking at when, when you're talking about new drivers and younger drivers. And there are, is a whole new generation So one of the things we introduced last March was actually we introduced EVs into the AA driving school and BSM driving school. And there's been a massive demand for it, both from instructors and indeed from pupils. And this is quite radical because if you think about it, we all learnt to drive on geared cars, stick shift cars. The future generation are going to Learn to drive in automatic cars because all EVs are automatic. So again, this will bring about great change. My my oldest son learns drive uh, in a geared car, but my two kids at the moment that are taking lessons are actually doing it in automatics because they like electric vehicles. They like the electric vehicles I drive, and in the future, they want they want when they can afford to. Get an electric vehicle, so so again, you know, it's not just the cars that are changing; it's what the drivers learn. So the driving test will will have to change more. In the in the show and tell bit, you will have to talk more about how you charge your car, where is the charging point, you know, how how, how do you get more range out of the car, what is regenerative braking? So again. I think the whole world of automation, from from the car to the training of the drivers to the driving test, this will all change more in the next five years, perhaps than it has in the last ten or twenty years.
0: Again, excellent point. I hadn't actually considered that when it comes to the show and tell side of a, a driving test. It's that long since I've had to pass a driving test. It's, <laughs> I'm not even sure I could do it anymore. Just moving on quickly. I know the AA have agreements with certain vehicle manufacturers to provide dedicated support for their cars. I think I know you've got Audi as one of the companies, and is VW another one that you're uh, you're involved with? Is there a possibility or even a need to do that for certain EV-only marks, uh, Tesla, Geely, BYD, for example, as as they start to become more uh, prevalent in the country?
1: Yeah, I mean it is interesting, but. Most of the EVs have, you know, common factors of what goes wrong, what needs to be put right, and our patrols are kind of trained across EVs. And I don't think you always need to be a specialist to work on an ID5 or on you know, I don't, Kia, uh, Hyundai, etc. There are a lot of common traits there. But what we tend to do, we tend to talk to the manufacturers that we deal with. And if there are specifics, that goes into the general training. So even though we have dedicated uh, technicians for various marks like Porsche, like VW, etc., most of our other patrols can still work on those vehicles. They are trained across the board. It's just some of the equipment that the dedicated technicians may have is quicker to link up to that specific manufacturer. But I, th- but I think on EVs generally, the, the common faults are common faults. Obviously, you will get nuances with different vehicles and this is where kind of patrol information in Intel is, is really important. And, you know, on our internal Yammer, you will obviously see patrols talking about a specific vehicle. And, you know, if this happens on this vehicle, this is what you should do. It's almost our tips of the trade. So you will get some of that. But I don't think you would need specialist technicians for every single car. I think there are many common factors out there of, of things that do go wrong.
0: I know one of the things that surprised me when I visited Oldbury. I went up to the I don't know, it was the third or the fourth floor there where the uh, telephone support section is. The AA provide telephone, telephone support for a group of charge point operators. So if I turn up at a charger and it doesn't work and I call the helpline number that's there, there is a reasonable chance that depending on the CPO involved, I'm not actually talking to any anyone from the CPO. I'm talking to someone from the AA. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, this was an initiative we started about two or three years ago. We we currently got ten of the major charge point providers on our books and we do basically offer a customer service and each month we're getting something like eleven or twelve thousand calls. So it it is actually quite a lot. And it's interesting, about sixty-one percent of those calls we get are Technical reasons, you know, I can't get this charge point to work. And it, it could be a number of things. It, we might have to reset the charge point. It might need the a reboot. There might be problems with cable release. And there are various things that our people can actually do. Or it, it might be basic advice. I think 21% of the calls are around, you know, have you got the right card? Have you got the right app etc so it's a combination of the, the these things so we we've developed that and it it's working quite well and then on the other side we've also got about 30 odd field staff who can actually go out some of the charge points and you know physically look at them and advise on faults that they might be there. So again like we have done in the past, and we still do with vehicle manufacturers to, to get the best of that knowledge, because we have experience of dealing with thousands of cars every day, thousands of breakdowns every day. Working with the charge post uh, operators helps us to give them more information about what's going wrong. So yeah, it's it's an area that that we see quite a bright future, quite an important role for the AA to play.
0: Just sort of as a follow-up for that, I'm pretty sure that you're feeding back to the charge point operators about the the volume and the nature of the errors or the assistance that you're having to provide. But if I go back to what you're saying about physically having people out and going and visiting the chargers, is there any connection or linkage between those people and not the charge point operators, but the actual charger manufacturers, you know, the, the tritiums of this world to say, you know, this is a constant issue that we're seeing with this kind of charger. You might want to have a look at it. Do, does, does any of that kind of communication take place?
1: Yeah, cu- currently it is more through the charge based operator because that's who we have the relationship with rather than the manufacturer. But if there are common things that, that we pick up at a senior level, we would feed that back to the manufacturers again you know if there's something that's obviously going wrong with one common element of a charge base then then we will feed it back so it's gaining that knowledge that information and i think the the other side of it though is information for the consumer and this is something i, I think should be improved I I do believe when you pick up a new EV, you're lucky enough to do so. You're very excited picking it up from the showroom. But not enough time is spent with the driver explaining some of the nuances of owning an EV and getting the best out of an EV. And obviously, when you pick up your car, you're excited about the car. You can't take everything in. And I know some manufacturers do this. They, they ask you to come back in two weeks or three weeks in a month. You can have follow up sessions, but that's something that we do believe new EV drivers do need more education, not only about the car, but about the charging infrastructure. So that, that's something again, you know, we're talking to manufacturers about. We're talking to the charge base operators about. You know, let, let's face it, this is a brave new world out there. We, we've had petrol and diesel for 100 odd years and we we all know pretty well how to fill up with, with with petrol. And this is a new world and there are new things to learn. There are nuances. There are some simple things that, that we get wrong. So it's that education process I do think it is important because up until now, It's probably been the earlier doctors who are perhaps a little more forgiven. You know, the earlier doctors who got the first Nissan Leafs, you know, they would read all the background of those vehicles. And, you know, if there were some niggles and haggles, they'd probably put up with it. The current generation of people who are, Driving EVs, you know, aren't the early adopters. They are ordinary drivers. They are they are company car drivers, and they just want to get in their car and drive. So it's a different mindset, and therefore we need different education.
0: Oh, again, you're preaching to the choir there. And it's you know, I, I've run whole episodes in this podcast about education and speaking specifically to what you've said there. I mean, the the number of times I've been to a charge point to find an iPACE or um, an eTron charging on the AC charger. And when I say, why are you not using the Rapid? They go, well, it won't accept it. And it's because nobody's told them that there's that second little bit below the AC charger. And when you flip the, the flap down, you get the high voltage pins. And you know, people's faces just light up when you show them that. Oh, you know, I, I don't have to spend four hours at a charger anymore. And again, it's, it's absolutely education, 100%.
1: But but, I do believe the e v community are also really good at that, and you know i i myself i I have turned up at the bank of charges, and someone's come up to me and said, "No, that one's not working, this one here is problematic, we've phoned up, and have been really helpful you know rather rather than just leaving me to try and plug it in going through the whole process so and as a community, I think they are very helpful, but I do think there's more that manufacturers can do and, you know, more that the AA can do to, to help messaging that. Uh,
0: final question for me on this. You mentioned earlier about the British Motor Show, and I was there, uh, popped by the, uh, the stand, said hi to uh, Dean and a few of the people there. You, as you mentioned earlier, you debuted a hydrogen power branded vehicle. Now, talk to me about the thinking behind that. I mean, I know you provide hydrogen in certain vans to refuel, the fuel cell vehicles that are stranded now is this a belt and braces thing or do you seriously expect hydrogen to hydrogen for smaller vehicles to increase in the uk
1: yeah so we we launched a hydrogen fuel cell uh, hyundai nexo as a patrol car for ultra low emission zones and Actually, I, I was quite impressed with the amount of kit that fits into the back of that vehicle from, you know, the freewheeling hub, the different batteries and most of the tools. The only thing that that vehicle can't do, that the current patrol van can do, is, is actual towing. And again, I think we get a little bit obsessed with towing because if you look at the AA's fix rates, we fix about 85% of cars at the roadside. So you don't always need towing capacity. And I think sometimes we, we kind of look at it that our vehicle must do everything. So this hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, yes, we, we're testing it out and we will test it out in one of the ultra-low emission zones. And I think there are a number of reasons why we've got it. I think the jury is still out for the longer term what role hydrogen may play in our transport infrastructure particularly when you look at larger vehicles heavier vehicles where batteries would need to be pretty massive pretty powerful to to actually power up a 44 ton truck etc and where you've got depots where industry can have that own hydrogen supplies and fill up their own vehicles. I think there could well be a role for that in the future. So, part of the thinking for the AAs to get involved in hydrogen fuel cells is, is part of that learning curve. So, our patrols can learn about hydrogen, can learn about the vehicle, so that in the future, if we're getting medium sized vehicles or heavier vehicles that are run on hydrogen, we will have some experience of it so yeah part part of it is learning part of it is innovation part of it is future proofing we don't always obviously electricity is going to be massive in the future no matter what happens but then again recently you know with the the price of energy the price of electricity has, has kind of changed the market somewhat so we, we have to remain nimble. We have to keep our eyes open. We have to continue to innovate.
0: You do actually have electric patrol vehicles as well, don't you?
1: We, we do have some electric patrol vehicles that we've used more for, again, some of the businesses that don't need the heaviest payloads. So some of the AA signs vehicles, things like fuel assist, et cetera. But we are looking, and you know, think things are getting much brighter on on that front. You know, we we need some patrol vehicles that can tow two tons that have got a one ton payload. And up until now, there hasn't been much on the market that can do that. That does look like it's changing. So I I think within two or three years, you will begin to see. More AA patrol vehicles out there that that are powered by electricity, but but again, we have to look at this broader as well, and it's not just about the vehicle; it's about our patrols. We generally our patrols work from a home base. They don't all work from Oldbury or Basingstoke or Cheadle or Newcastle. They they set up off from home in the morning or late at night, depending when their shift is from home. And therefore, we've got to look at charging patterns. Are they able to charge at home? Can we get them like, charge points at home? What if they don't have off-street parking? Where where will they charge? So, it's all these issues that I know are issues for individuals and other businesses out there, but we have to look at these both for Charles and, as I mentioned earlier, for driving instructors. You know, Can the driving instructors get enough charge at home to give You know seven lessons during that day so these will all be issues that we have to embrace uh, as the world of automotive technology changes
0: Many thanks to Edmund for his time a couple of takeaways from this for me primarily the fact that running out of charge accounts for about two percent of actual calls for EVs and the fact that tyres and 12 volt battery issues are the most common causes of call-outs So the myth that EVs run out of charge all the time is slightly blown out of the water here. Secondly, the fact that a lot of charge point operators are using the AA to provide customer service for their helplines. I don't have an exact list of which ones the AA is responsible for, they tend to keep that under wraps for obvious reasons, but I've spoken to the people that do this, I've stood next to them as they've dealt with calls from people trying to charge, and I quite comfortably provide as good a service as the CPOs themselves would. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Our good friends at Google have updated their mapping app to include route planning options that are there specifically for electric vehicle drivers. The key one is a feature that will highlight routes that use less energy if they have a similar ETA to other alternate routes. Less energy means a longer range on your battery. This option should take into account elevation change, vehicle speed limits and including A roads where they can take better advantage of regenerative braking and lower mileages. You can also select whether your vehicle has battery electric or hybrid so it understands what you're looking for. The feature was trialled in North America last year and will be introduced across Europe in the coming weeks. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZAPMAP, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK which helps EV drivers search, plan and pay for their charging. ZAPMAP is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZAPMAP in car, on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Musings EV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoy this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. KO FI.com slash I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So You've Gone Electric is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So You've Gone Renewable is also available on Amazon for 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you have got to this point by tweeting me at MusingTV with the words mostly tyres and 12 volt batteries. Hashtag if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, his latest passion is sneakers, training shoes. He's got into a club that trades them and shows them off, exhibits them, the whole lot. I asked him if he'd ever worn an original air Jordan. He said no, but he told me. Yeah, We do have
1: a couple of innovation bands. In fact, we were showing them off at the British Motor Show last week. I'll wait on that one for you.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye.